the best way to support the show is to subscribe and give a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can find maps and supplemental materials on Instagram at GermaniaPod. And you can contact me directly with questions, compliments, or complaints at gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello. Welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 2.12, City of God. In the last episode, we covered Augustine's assessment of the history of the kingdoms of Earth and the foundations of sand upon which they were built. The enemies of the church who wanted to return to traditional Roman values were making arguments that tied too much to the material world and relied too heavily on the idea that success was reflective of virtue. Augustine wanted to focus on building community in a new way. This was important because one of the challenges that Christianity faced during this period was the fact that it claimed to provide a universal path to salvation, yet the religious traditions it was competing with were all older than it was. And trying to tie its history to that of Judaism did not really help with this problem, as it only highlighted the absurdity of casting aside a perfectly valid tradition. The permanence of religious beliefs was seen as a virtue, making any change necessarily one for the worse. Augustine was highlighting that there was not really any stability in the earthly world before the sack of Rome, and that the only stability would come from the eternal city of God. One item that I skipped over from the first ten books that does deserve mention is that Augustine did not see his work as being rooted solely in faith over reason. Augustine was a strong advocate that faith and reason worked in harmony to help humanity understand the world, and that faith without reason was nothing but blind obedience. Our gifts of reason allow us to better understand the wonders of the universe that God has created. But blind adherence to reason alone would lead people astray by putting too much meaning into the things that we can measure. Augustine saw this especially in the practice of astrology, which was in many ways the hot science of the day, and operated under the assumption that because humans can measure the position of the stars so exactly and reliably, that that knowledge had to have more meaning than it actually does. I, for one, see this echoed in the modern focus and fascination with artificial intelligence and other applications of, of algorithms to big data. It is not that these advances are meaningless, it is that they should not determine the way we view our place in the world and our relationships to our fellow man. The people arguing that AI could gain sentience have a very shallow understanding of what it means to be human, in my opinion. In the final twelve books, Augustine recounts the story of humanity from creation to the last judgment is a way of explaining the city of man against the true history of the city of God, and highlighting why the differences exist. Now, I would never want to criticize Augustine, so let me just quote here from the online Britannica entry on City of God. The work is too long, and at times, particularly in the last books, 
too discursive to make entirely satisfactory reading today, but it remains impressive as a whole and fascinating in its parts. So let me see if I can pull out some of the interesting and influential bits here. Let's go back to the genesis of the world in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. To Augustine, it is notable that God called the light good, but not the darkness. Does that mean that some other malevolent force created the darkness? Does that mean that God created the darkness to be evil? No, it just means that the light cannot exist without the darkness. As Augustine went on to say in Book 12 of City of God, quote, Let no one, therefore, look for an efficient cause of the evil will, for it is not efficient, but deficient, as the will itself is not an effecting of something, but a defect. Now to seek to discover the cause of these defections, as if someone sought to see darkness, or hear silence. Yet both of these are known to us, but not by their positive actuality, but only by their want of it. Consequently, he who inordinately loves the good which any nature possesses, even though he obtain it himself, becomes evil in the good, and wretched because deprived of a greater good. Unquote. So it is our defections from good that lead us to do evil, not some property of nature that draws us into evil. It is not the fault of money that people are greedy, nor is it the fault of lovely and charming objects that people value consumption over temperance. Since humans are rational creatures with free will, they cannot always choose the good, otherwise we would just be a race of slaves to authority. The issue of vice is that it destroys good or causes harm. So if something causes no harm, it is no vice. Vice moves you away from God, away from that which is good and beautiful. So the worst thing that can happen to someone is to sin and have it go unpunished, because they are not being reconciled to God. Augustine also spends quite a bit of time on death and what it means for the body to die and for the spirit to die. Moving on to Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest, therefore thou shalt surely die. For Augustine, the takeaway is that this death is not the death of the body, but the death of the soul. And the death of the soul comes from man's separation from God. With the eating of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden. This first sin was one of disobedience and pride. It was in that original sin that mankind went from being focused on the spiritual needs 
to being focused on both physical and spiritual needs. The physical needs sometimes lead us to make mistakes in how we evaluate certain priorities. To Augustine, it is right that humans are superior to animals due to our reasoning abilities, and living creatures are superior to things that lack sentience. But our physical needs sometimes lead us to miss this truth, valuing some minerals pulled from the ground over the lives of the pack animals used to transport them, or valuing gold over the lives of the poor. But it is important to understand that the source of this evil comes from our own will and deception. The differences between the two societies is that one society wants to live after the flesh and the other after the spirit. This is a fault of original sin of mankind that we are forced to pursue this life of flesh, and it is by God's grace that we can still access the life of the spirit. The sins of the flesh include both the sins of pleasure-seeking, adultery, drunkenness, fornication, as well as sins that are vices of the soul. Hatred, wrath, idolatry, heresy, envy. This is because the sins of the flesh are not about sins of the physical world alone, but sins of the spirit being corrupted away from God. So living a life without sin is living a life in God's truth, not in your own lie or the lies of other men. Loving, desiring, pursuing those things that are good will make you good. Loving, desiring, and pursuing those things that are evil makes you not good. Going further, if you are a lover of evil things and you desire them and pursue them, your punishment comes from your attainment of the evil things. To provide a modern example, the concept of money is value-neutral to Augustine, but the desire of money and the placing the desire of money over the desire of justice is a sin. So the lover of money, who pursues money at the expense of all else, will find his punishment when he possesses all the money he ever dreamed of, but finds that it does not make him content. You only have so many days in your mortal life and you have just wasted so many of them, pursuing things that have no spiritual value. Now, we wouldn't be talking Augustine if we weren't talking issues of sexual shame. Augustine describes sexual relations as the most powerful of the earthly pleasures, and goes on to say that this is why, even though people can lust after many different things, money, influence, revenge, it is appropriate that in general we use lust to refer to sexual desire. To Augustine, the importance of sexual shame is basically that sex is so good that if we didn't feel shame over it, we would not want to do anything else. We still feel shame even when we pursue lust within the confines of a marriage. Augustine uses the example that people would much rather have a crowd witness them screaming angrily at someone in public contrary to God's law, instead of that same crowd watching them have sex with their spouse. He also provides some interesting thoughts on the two most difficult sins to control being lust and anger, as each is motivated by a love for something that is good to want in some moderation. If you completely 
banish a desire for sexual relations from your life, human beings could not procreate. And anger comes from a desire to correct an injustice. So it is right for the righteous to feel all of the different human emotions, as long as they are feeling them for the proper things. Should you feel fear? Certainly, if you fear failing to live according to God's law. Should you feel joy? Yes, when you have obtained something that was righteous for you to obtain. Should you feel grief? Certainly, at any sins you may have committed. And importantly, you should feel these emotions as it relates to the members of your community as well. This concept of two cities, of man and of God, was not unique to Augustine, and actually reflected a tradition within North African Christianity. Augustine was likely the most influenced by a Donatist writer of the 4th century, Tychonius, who wrote that since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, the human race had been divided into two civitates, which we can imagine as two cities, but is perhaps better understood as two hierarchies competing for our loyalty. One city served God and the angels, and the other served the devil and his demons. You can see the Manichaean influence in this analogy as well. In Tychonius's writing, these two cities will be separated at the Last Judgment. And in this tradition, the two cities are frequently described as Jerusalem and Babylon. So then, while many writers of the period focused on the sack of Rome as a metaphor for the Last Judgment and the end of the world, Augustine takes the perspective of understanding what life was like for the Jews who had been carried off to Babylon after the destruction of the First Temple. They had to integrate their devotion to the city of man with their devotion to the kingdom of God. In that way, the Jews in Babylon were peaceful subjects and good public servants, and they held on to the faith that they would eventually be restored to Jerusalem. This is reflected in Augustine's choice to describe the city of God through the hopeful messages of the Psalms, which he quotes from frequently. People were always going to live in an integrated world, and it was important to understand that in your preaching. This is why Augustine saw it as important for a bishop to live among his congregation and for their benefit, and he did not accept those who removed themselves to live an aesthetic life. So Augustine set out to show that this division between earthly and heavenly world had existed throughout human history. One example is the way that Augustine addresses the theological debate if the Garden of Eden described in Genesis was an actual, physical place on earth, or if the garden was a metaphor. Augustine acknowledges the clear metaphorical interpretations and how those meanings impact the Christian definition of morality, but also points out that the clearly metaphorical interpretation does not eliminate the possibility of a physical garden. The two can exist side by side. Augustine comes back frequently to another of the oldest biblical stories, that of Cain and Abel, which you can find in Genesis chapter 4. In this story, Cain is the firstborn son, and his interests are literally rooted into the earth, 
he tills the fields, and is even said to found the first city. Abel, meanwhile, is not tied to one particular piece of land. He keeps the flocks, and flocks are more mobile. For those of you who are interested, I found a 2019 study on the diet of ruminants on the Mongolian Altai Mountains that found that sheep and goats typically walk 13 to 14 kilometers per day, about 8 or 8.5 miles, and that the daily grazing area of a flock averages 65 to 70 hectares, or about 160 to 170 acres. What's important in the story is that each brother offers a sacrifice to God, and God finds Abel's to be more appealing. It is the jealousy over this slight that leads Cain to kill Abel. And so in this, Augustine saw one of the great conflicts between humans, those who are focused on earthly achievements and view them as an end in themselves, and those wanderers who are searching for a higher meaning. Augustine sees the civitas terrenas, the fallen men, as rejecting the higher aims and also resenting those who seek to find them. He refers to the seekers as civitas peregrini, which can be translated as resident aliens. Peter Brown also highlights that this phrase has been translated as pilgrims, and in this context it's important to understand that Augustine hated travel. The important thing to realize is that the Civitas Turinus and the Civitas Peregrini, while they may have conflicts, are not actually in opposition to one another. So Augustine's message to the devout is not to separate themselves from the world, but to live an otherworldly life within the world. To Christians, the important people and events of history that were worth studying were those that foretold and led to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Augustine was not necessarily the best historian of his age, but he did have an understanding of something important, that these milestones of truth were generally separated by centuries during which people's lives had to continue on. So he presented a prophetic history that was concentrated on critical moments in time when humanity turned towards or away from God, which interrupted the ongoing human desire to achieve material and social success on earth. I think that this understanding of the scope of history was also reflected in some of Augustine's writings about the importance of letting people come to Christ through their own reason, rather than any sort of forced conversion. There is always the future. Quote, For so long as they live, it remains uncertain whether they may or may not come to a better mind. Unquote. As covered in the last episode, leading up to Alaric's sack of Rome, Augustine's theological arguments had primarily been directed against the Donatists the more North African form of Christianity. At the time he began writing City of God, Augustine's primary antagonists were the pagan nobility, and we see that reflected in the way he describes Roman history and Roman virtues in the first five books. But by the time City of God was completed, 
a new heresy had become prominent, and Augustine became one of its harshest critics. These were the disciples of a lay preacher named Pelagius. Pelagius and Augustine were similar in a number of ways. They were born at roughly the same time in an exterior Roman province, as Pelagius was born around 354 in Britannia. By the early 380s, Pelagius also resided in the Italian peninsula. But while Augustine initially achieved success in the imperial bureaucracy in Milan, Pelagius made his mark in Rome. The two men rose to prominence in very different ways, however, as Augustine became influential due to his writings as a bishop in North Africa, while Pelagius was never part of the church hierarchy, and instead won adherence initially, as many of these sorts of lay preachers did, through his public speaking and based on his adherence to a strict monastic lifestyle, combined with his attacks on the opulent lifestyle of the Roman elite. As Christianity continued gaining prominence in the late 4th century, and shifted from the religion of women and slaves to the religion of the aristocracy and promoted by the state, many of the standard behaviors within the existing power structure were reinterpreted as aligning with Christian doctrine rather than with old Roman virtue. There was also the inevitable pressure on bishops and priests to defend the interests and arguments of the state using religious texts. I'll quote now from Peter Brown's biography of Augustine, as I think he does a great job of highlighting the contradiction. Quote, the flamboyant courtesies of late Roman etiquette could pass as Christian humility. The generosity traditionally expected of an aristocrat as Christian almsgiving. Yet these good Christians, true believers, were still members of a ruling class committed to maintaining the imperial laws by administering brutal punishments. They were prepared to fight tooth and nail to protect their vast properties, and were capable of discussing at the dinner table both the latest theological opinion, on which they prided themselves as experts, and the kind of judicial torture that they had just inflicted on some poor wretch." Unquote. So Pelagius provided an alternative to this apparent hypocrisy with his preaching of absolute obedience to God. The basic ideology was that God had provided a blueprint to live a righteous life in the form of the Bible. By strict adherence to the text, it is therefore possible to live a theologically perfect life. Since it is possible to live a perfect life, it is therefore obligatory to live a perfect life. So anyone who does not strictly follow the teachings of the Bible is a sinner and is destined for damnation. I once had a teacher in high school, notorious for giving incredibly difficult tests, the tests that most people could only get 40 or 50% on. At one point, we convinced her it would be better to grade these tests on a curve rather than using our raw percentage scores, and she agreed. But the way she curved the tests was by taking the difference between the highest score and 100 and just adding those points to everyone's score. 
because if someone could get a 98, then everyone should have gotten a 98. I now realize this was a very Pelagian approach to grading exams. Along with this expectation of perfection, Pelagius rejected the entire notion of original sin, believing that his own salvation could not possibly depend on the actions of people who lived generations before he was born. Pelagius was a big proponent of individual responsibility. While Pelagius was eventually excommunicated and his beliefs were declared heretical, it does not take an overabundance of imagination to see them reflected in plenty of other Christian movements over the next 1600 years. Augustine pretty clearly saw the similarity between Donatus and Pelagius in the way their form of Christianity was concerned with requiring a form of perfection. Augustine saw himself as preaching towards a more common Roman citizen who would try their best to live a good life, but wasn't going to be an expert on the text of the Bible and would always fall short of that kind of standard. It was the role of the universal Catholic Church to help people find their way and to keep the celebration of God in the forefront of people's minds, making salvation more of a communal responsibility. In the end, can your almsgiving and good deeds make up for your sins? No, they cannot. It is only the love of God and faith that can redeem you. And in the kingdom of God, we will see each other in our spiritual beauty. It is a kingdom of true honor and true peace that comes from being comfortable with who we are and treating all with justice. It is stable and the source of ultimate consolation. In his biography of Augustine of Hippo, Peter Brown uses an interesting phrase to describe City of God, given the nature of the work and the environment in which it was produced. He wrote that this was a work of Christian nationalism. As scary as that phrase is to us today, for the period, Augustine's Christian nationalism could be seen as a more progressive movement. His focus was on taking power away from the existing structures of the state and the old nobility, who still controlled most of the wealth in the Roman world. Christ's focus on the value of each individual, regardless of their station in life, as made in God's image, obliterated any distinctions between citizen and slave, between Roman and provincial and barbarian. Augustine was describing a new nation in which all would be welcome as equals based on their mutual faith in God. Mm -hmm.